Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's show, I was joined by Vanessa Newton, the head of operations here at Dashdot. And we answered a bunch of questions that have been sent in to us by you, the listener, to get answered on the show. So we covered some really great topics. So just to give you the kind of high level, we talked about um, what is the actual impact of interest rate rises on your back pocket? How does that infect, affect investors? We talked about what do you do if you have a negatively geared property in your portfolio? Is it bad? Should you sell it? How do you think about that? How do you think about moving forward in your portfolio if you have bought a bad asset, whatever bad may be to you? We also talked about what would the impact be of replacing stamp duty with land tax if we abolish the stamp duty. That's a really great discussion we had on that. And finally, we talked about some of the roadblocks that um, investors face, including analysis paralysis and having preconceived ideas around what their property portfolio strategy should be and all of that kind of stuff. So really great episode. We touched on some really great questions. Um, I personally really enjoyed it because it, I, like the, uh, I like this format of being able to answer different questions for different people. So if you've enjoyed this, make sure you send your questions through to TIL. That's the Investor Lab, TIL, at dashdot.com.au. Without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today on today's show is the inimitable Vanessa Newton, <laughs> Operations Manager, oh, Head of Operations, sorry, at Dashdot. Vanessa, how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Goose. I'm, I'm happy to come to work every day. I get that kind of introduction, so I'll, I'll be here same time tomorrow. I appreciate it. Thank you. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, look, I, we actually got a lot of um, really great feedback from the last episode that we did together, um, did. which was really, really cool. And um, what I've noticed as well is there's been a lot more people sending in questions. So we thought mm. we would do something similar this time around, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got some really fantastic questions from listeners today. So I've got a little bit of a mix for you. I've got a couple from listeners, a couple um, that have come from our team, um, and hopefully there's some really good value in there for everyone. Yeah, awesome. I particularly like these uh, episodes, by the way. And if you're listening, because um, what it really helps. Like I, I love just like answering like loads of different questions. It actually <laughs> kind of helps me. Like my just I enjoy the kind of mental exercise. So these kind yeah. of episodes are really really good. So I'm actually looking forward to it. So. What's our first question that we're going to tackle today? Yeah, so it's around interest rates, which is always a hot topic because it's so well publicized and it's always in the media and it's it's a very um, deep topic that has a lot of drivers behind it. So we get a lot of questions around interest rates. Um, and this particular one that I have for you at the moment is to understand what impact uh, in rising interest rates are likely to have um, on the actual back pocket of uh, people that are investing. and. Um, I'm not going to set you up for an impossible question to answer because, of course, you can't answer that question because every loan is different, every circumstance is different, cash flow positions, every property is different. But I'm wondering if I can just give you an example of a really mid-range typical property and you can let us know um, what uh, rising interest rates might might have an effect on that scenario, if that's all right. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a great topic. Cool. So, um, if you're able to talk us through what an interest rate increase to a Positively geared five hundred thousand dollar property might look like. Yeah, awesome. So, um, I know that the question is about like what is the impact on the back pocket, but I just kind of interest rates are such an interesting one. They're such a hot topic, mm. and and um, one of my favorite big myths to dispel in real estate is that interest rates do not affect property prices. So we'll come back to the back pocket thing and, and we'll get into that. But a lot of people think that, oh my God, if interest rates go up, property prices are going to go down. And that is the biggest 
lie and the biggest myth that gets pr- proliferated through uh, through anyone who's ever even talking about property, you see it in all the media and all of that kind of stuff. It is as big of a lie as only as as thinking that you can only buy growth assets or cash flow assets and you can't get both, right? So mm-hmm. I will say it absolutely clearly and plainly for everyone to hear. Interest rates do not make property prices go down, right? There is no correlation. Doesn't happen. Okay. Now, what it does actually impact though, it actually does impact some areas more than others. Okay. So and in general, it doesn't affect them. Some areas it affects them more than others, right? And typically that's got to do with affordability. So what we've seen over the last, you know, 10 years or so is home ownership affordability has been greater than it's and then it's ever been or last, you know, a couple of years at least. Um, and that's because the cost of capital has been going down and and the access to credit has been good, which means that homeowners are able to buy into properties even though the property prices have been going up. They're actually able to afford to get into properties sooner. So what has happened there is that's actually allowed a lot more home, home, homeowners to get into the market. It's actually pushed a lot of investors out of the market. So there's actually more homeowners now than there were. Now, what happens um, in uh, when interest rates go up is home ownership affordability goes down and what that means is that less people can afford to buy homes, but it also means that those people then become renters. And what that also means is that rent that the rental market gets tighter, which also means that rents go up, which means that the nominal yields on those properties become better, which make them more attractive to investors. So what you actually see when interest rates go up is a bit of a transition between... And, and we've been in high interest rate environments, environments before in Australia. So back in the 80s, interest rates went up by like 4% and house prices went up by 35%. It just is, but we've had high interest rate environments before uh, in Australia. And what would typically happen is that it's a bit of an interplay between homeowners and investors and how that marketing is being supported. Because at the end of the day, we have a certain amount of people in the country and they need places to live. That's simple, right? And we have a housing, we have a rental shortage and a and a and a house shortage, generally speaking. So when that happens, that changes the dynamics of the property. But to, to bring it back to your question, Vanessa, I know that was a bit of a ramble there, but I thought it was really interesting to, to or very valuable to t- touch on. To your point, right? What does that actually like? What is the impact on the back pocket? Right. So let's say that you own a five hundred thousand dollar property and let's say it's yielding at six percent, right? And we'll just use these numbers to create a baseline. And let's also say that you have an 80% LBR loan. So you've put in 20% deposit into the property. And we'll also say that the interest rate on that property is 3%. Okay. So that's our baseline. We've got a $500,000 property, 6% yield, 80% LBR loan, 3% interest rate. Okay. On that basis, you would end up with roughly, depending on the location and the rates and all of these other kind of things, but you would end up with roughly about $1,500 a year in your back pocket in cash, right? That is after your property management, that is after your maintenance, that is after your rates, water, insurance, all of the operating expenses of the property, you would end up with net cash flow of about $1,500 a year, which doesn't sound like a lot. But hey, it's a a lot better than having something that's yielding at like 2 or 3%, right? So what happens if interest rates go up by like 1%? What does that actually mean, right? So in this scenario, in scenario one, if you've got a 3% interest rate with everything else that I've just said, you'd end up with about 1500 bucks a year in your back pocket. If that interest rate went up to 4%, you would end up with negative $1,150 in your back pocket. Okay, cool. So $1,150 divided by 12 is uh, $95 a month or divided by 52 is $22 a week. Okay, So that's how much it would cost you on that same property if the rent stayed the same and the yield stayed the same 
and interest rates went up. So that is a difference of about $2,650 between those two points. Okay. So that's how much that specifically is how that would change in that scenario. Now, what that doesn't take into consideration is how the rental market changes, right? So if you've got what typically happens as interest rates go up is rents go up as well. And that typically absorbs the rising cost uh, of interest rates for property investors, not for homeowners, right? But for property investors, it does soak that up as well. So that's something I would expect to see happen. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, it does. And I think it makes it very tangible. Um, obviously, you're using very midline um, property price and, and whatnot, but I think it makes it very a very tangible uh, concept to understand and um yeah, I, I appreciate it. We did, you know, go on a bit of a journey, but it, it helps um, helps explain all the interlocked elements that go into what what cash flow you have on your property. It's not just interest rates; it's got you've got uh, rental coming in and all these other costs as well. So it's not just siloed in being driven by interest rates. So it was, it was good to understand. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, yeah cool. I think it's yeah a lot of because a lot of people get a lot of fear around it, but I think the key. Mm. So aside from understanding that. Okay. Yep. So on that kind of property, I'd have it at about you know twenty six hundred bucks a year or whatever in 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 cash flow difference. Mm. The important thing to remember is that it does change the dynamic of the real estate market, and rents typically go up. So mm. um, it's not something to be afraid of, particularly for property investors. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So my next question is from one of our listeners, from Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Um, and I'll take the liberty of, of being Catherine for, for this question. So she wrote in saying, um, you talk a lot about people buying the wrong kinds of properties uh, before they come to Dashdot, coming to you. Um, and so she's talking in the context of negatively geared properties. Mm-hmm. Um, now that Catherine's found the light and discovered that they should be buying positively geared properties um, that has growth potential, what do they do with the negatively geared properties that they already own? Um, and so Catherine asked this question because she's in this category herself. And, and so she's curious about what your take is on this scenario for her. Should she consider selling or is it you know, a done deal? She should just stick with it until it becomes positively geared. Yeah, I absolutely love this question, right? Because um, first of all, there's no such thing as a bad asset. There's only bad asset selection, right? So just because cash flow positive properties are generally better, that doesn't mean that uh, negatively geared properties are like the devil's work. The reason that we demonize them quite a lot and, and the reason that we have such a high focus on positive cash flow properties is because generally speaking, negatively geared properties or negative cash flow properties are going to get people stuck, right? So there's a reason that 71% of property investors never get past property number one and 90% never get past property number two. The main reason for that is negatively geared properties, right? It's properties that don't produce enough income and people can't afford to buy any more than one or maybe two. Now, the really sad part about that is that what that means is that only about 1% or less than 1% of property investors ever actually achieve their financial goals, right? It's it's huge. It's a big, big problem, right? So 99% of property investors will never achieve the financial goals that they set out to achieve when they started property investing because they get this wrong. That being said, if you've got a negatively geared asset, does that mean that you just sell it? And like, oh my God, it's, it's like poison. I've got to get this out of my portfolio. Well, not necessarily, right? So a couple of ways you've got to think about that is for the very first question to ask is, are you stuck, right? Because if you're not stuck, then you might not have a reason to release that capital from the asset, right? So 
if you have the if you have enough capital plus enough borrowing capacity to continue to build your property portfolio without selling that asset and without it you know being a a burden on your hip pocket day to day and all of that kind of stuff if you can afford to keep it then it might actually make sense to keep it right so for for the time being right there will come a time where it is going to make sense to get that out of your portfolio and generally speaking it is not a case of just waiting until it becomes positive although again unless you get stuck you could do that because getting stuck is the thing that we're trying to avoid not not specifically having a property that is negative cash flow it's actually getting stuck now the way to think about this is um let's say you had a property that was negatively geared and let's just say that if you sold it once you paid the selling costs and you know, the paid the mortgage back and all of that kind of stuff. The cash you left had left over was a hundred thousand dollars, right? If you put that hundred thousand dollars in the bank, how much are you going to earn on it? Or I don't know, about zero point one percent, right? So it's not like basically you're not going to be making anything on your capital. Now, if that hundred grand sat in that negatively geared asset, right, and that asset grew even a nominal amount, right? You're going to be magnifying that $100,000 much faster than you're going to have it by keeping it in the bank. And again, this is where it comes down to getting stuck. If you have a choice though, between like, okay, I've now... So I actually want to get that money out of that property so that I can go buy more cash flow positive properties and better assets. Then that is a choice about asset allocation and that might make sense. But all things being equal, if you've got $100,000 in that negatively geared asset. But let's say you've still got $200,000 of cash in the bank, plus you've got enough borrowing capacity and you can continue... Like You're not restricted on capital or borrowing capacity and you can continue to build your property portfolio. Then until such time as you need that capital in order to proliferate your portfolio, it's probably going to be better. Assuming that you're in a decent market where the prices aren't going to go down or something like that, it's probably better off to be in an appreciating asset than it is to just be sitting in the bank waiting to be deployed. So it all kind of comes back down to like, are you stuck or not? That's kind of how I would be thinking about it. And it's also really important to remember that different properties serve a purpose at different stage in your portfolio, and it's okay to sell properties. So another one of our clients, uh, Olivia, she way before she became a client, she came to me and, and asked for a bit of help. She actually got stuck. She had bought like four properties, uh, and one of them was negatively geared, um, but it had grown massively, right? But she was stuck. She was stuck in terms of borrowing capacity. She couldn't. Um, she couldn't go any further in her portfolio, um, and it was because of her borrowing capacity, and it was because of this negatively geared asset. But that property had grown like massively. In fact, that property had been the fuel that had allowed her to generate enough capital to buy the other assets in the portfolio. Um, so that had actually served the purpose of growing the portfolio. That was the reason that she got enough capital to get to property five, prop, four or five properties, right? So I said to her, I said, well, maybe that that asset has actually served its purpose, right? Maybe that asset has now done the thing that you needed it to do at that time in your portfolio. And if that is now holding you back, right, it now might be time to release that property from your portfolios. Because what gets you out of Egypt won't get you to the promised land. And understanding how those different assets can support you at different stages of the journey is critical. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks, Goose. Um, Catherine, let, let us know if that helps helps you and um, if you've got any follow-on questions from that. That's a, a really fantastic question. So, thank you for sending it in. Uh, so, my next question is actually from another listener, from Dan. So, um, Goose is hoping that you can deep dive into the proposal to replace stamp duty with land tax um, and what the implications may be for investors. 
Mm, yeah, it's a great one. I don't know whether I'm going to deep dive into it because there's a lot of like... It's deep, yeah. Yeah, it's like that's a lot of kind of technical kind of pol- policy stuff and everything yeah. like that. But here's the interesting thing. Firstly, there is no such thing as good or bad, right? There's just different. So um, I think stamp duty just is. Like I don't, I don't, I am not one of those people that like shakes my fist at the sky and says, oh, why do we have stamp duty? It is literally just part of the cost of doing business. So I don't have a problem with it. That being said... Um, if we were to abolish stamp duty and move to a greater land tax structure, what that would do would be uh, would decrease the friction of buying and selling properties, right? So that would increase the velocity at which you could trade a property because right now, um, very broadly speaking, you've got nine percent in buying and selling costs, right? To buy to buy and sell a property. Now, if you and so essentially, if you buy a property. In order for you to break even when you sell the property, it must have grown by about by at least nine percent, generally speaking, right? And so, if you could reduce that barrier, let's say you could get that down to two percent in terms of buying and selling costs, then what that would mean is the property would only need to grow by I don't know two point five percent for you to be able to sell that for a profit. So when you take in those dynamics into the market, what that can do is that can increase the velocity at which people can trade properties and sell properties um, and make a profit and make it sustainable and all of that kind of stuff. Now, the impact that that has on the market is that that, that uh, increased uh, frequency of transaction actually can be beneficial to the market, right? So so you can actually like... What I think would happen is you would see a lot more growth, right? When you, an easy way to think about this is... Um, is when you look at shares, like something like Commonwealth Bank of Australia, really high volume of transactions, right? And so what happens is it's got to like, it smooths out the growth. So you have much less volatility in the market because people can, you have higher frequency of transactions. So the price is more known at any given point in time. And therefore, you don't have as much price prices jumping around all over the place. If you look at something that has a low volume of shares available uh, on the stock market and a low trading volume, the price can jump around like like wild, right? So it can be massively up one day and massively down the next day, and that's because from a price discovery aspect, people are like there's not enough trading volume for people to have a good sense of what the actual price is. So if you're in a property market where there's more transactions happening, then it is more likely that you will understand what the real value of the asset you're buying is because there's way more comparables. It's like, oh, hang on a second. I'm on this street and there's 10 houses on the street and five of them have sold in the last two months and they all sold for $500,000. Okay. Well, all things being equal, this house that I want to sell here is also probably going to be worth $500,000 roughly, right? Simplest way of thinking about it. Now, if you're in a suburb which has a thousand houses and only one of them has sold uh, in the last 12 months and it was six months ago, how how likely is it that you're going to be able to understand what the true value is of of a house that you want to sell today, right? Very, it's very unlikely, right? So lower transaction volume actually increases the variability between um, uh, what people pay and what the true value is, which can be good <laughs> if you know how to play that arbitrage, right? But generally speaking, um, increasing the transaction volume is going to give people a better understanding of true price. So I think it's really, I think it's really interesting. I think that um, you know, in a future state, I believe that transacting properties faster is going to be the key. And I think that 
as we move into you know the, the future of real estate, I think that smart contracts are going to become more prevalent. So we're going to be able to increase the speed of transaction. I think reducing the transaction costs. So if we can automate things like conveyancing, um, if we can remove friction like stamp duty, um, if we can like all of these things, if you can do away with um, all of the buying and selling costs, if you could get the buying and selling costs down to zero and you could trade you could buy a property at 9 a.m. in the morning and sell a property at 5 p.m. in the evening. What that's going to do is that's going to actually open up um, the accessibility of real estate to more people and it's going to be a pathway to the democratization of property. So um, it's a big, big thing though because it has further implications on um, the country, right? Because stamp duty is a really great source of revenue. And so um, as with any business, if you change the business model or the cash collection model in the business, there are serious implications, right? So if you run a... If you run a service business and then you decide that you want to become a subscription-based business, your revenue might drop precipitously from one month to the next. And unless you're in a, a, a sustainable financial position to be able to weather that storm, that could be devastating for the business. So the implications of how that would impact the economy and what all the second and third order consequences are, where if we did that, um, do we have enough cash reserves? Would we have to cut uh, expenditure on things like infrastructure and education and stuff like that. And would that actually have a different impact on the property market because there's less projects driving growth? So there's all these kind of second and third order consequences to it. But just surface level, um, I think that it would be an interesting evolution in, in property and would actually probably be helping us get to where I think the future real estate is going to go. That's super interesting. <laughs> super interesting. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Let's uh, let us know if that uh, was deep enough of a dive for you. If uh, there's some extra questions that have come up from that, we'd love to keep digging into it with you. Um, okay. So, final question for the day, and it's around some limiting thoughts that some people have that can sometimes stop them from reaching their investment goals. Um, so, if it's okay, I'll, I'll put there's sort of two two common ones that that have been coming up for us recently, Goose. I'll put them put them to you for your thoughts on them, if that's okay. Sounds good. Cool. So, first one is around analysis paralysis, and uh, I think this—I love this term. I think it's so encapsulates uh, exactly what it means. And um, at Dash Dot, we are all about the analysis. We have a team of property analysts, so um, we're deep diving into the analysis. But there's a limit to that for um, investors, where they can start to become stuck in just focusing on all of the, the analysis and they never actually make a decision and they never actually take that step forward to purchasing something because they're, they're analysing for so long. Um, so, I just want to understand your thoughts on um, what implications that can have for a investor and maybe some ideas on how they can move past that uh, paralysis stage and actually to take action. Yeah. So, I think it's pretty normal. Like, It's not just mm. in real estate. Like, People get analysis paralysis all the time. I mean... Yes. I sometimes get analysis paralysis trying to work out what to have for dinner. You know, I just yeah. like I'm like, what? Oh my god, there's so many choices. And what if I don't? What if I get fish and I don't want fish? And uh, it's like it can be really tough, right? So I totally get it. And the thing is with real estate investing, people say things like, "Oh, property investing shouldn't be emotional and all of that kind of stuff." But it is, right? It absolutely is. When people are investing in real estate, what they are trying to do is change their lives. They're trying to move themselves to a state where they can do what they want, when they want, with who they want. They want to live a more fulfilling life. They want to have more impact. They want to escape the nine to five. These are all really, really important things. Like Your life depends on it, <laughs> literally. like The decision you make in, in investing in property 
your life depends on it. How you live the rest of your existing existence is going to be based on the decision you make today. And that can be terrifying, right? Because what if you get yeah. it wrong? <laughs> what if you get it wrong, yeah. right? And here's the, here's the rub, right? 90% of property investors do get it wrong. In fact, 99% of property investors get it wrong, right? And only 1% of property investors actually achieve their goals. And so it's quite normal for people to be like, oh my God, like I am not going to get anywhere or I could make the wrong decision. And so you get stuck and, and do nothing. And that's super common. And I see it all the time. But here's the downside. People don't think about what the actual opportunity cost is and risk works both ways, right? So by taking action and making the wrong choice, you're taking a risk, right? Or by taking action, you're taking a risk because you could make the right choice or you could make the wrong choice and there is a risk. But also by taking no action, there is also a risk, right? And that risk is lost opportunity and that has a genuine real actual cost to it. So if you buy a $500,000 property and if it grows by 15% a year, that works out to be about $75,000 in growth, which works out to be about $205 a day. So for a lot of people that sit on their hands and they're wondering and they're just like, oh, I'm just looking for the right opportunity. They're not actually calculating what the actual cost of doing nothing is, which is about $205 a day to sit on the couch and make no choices, right? If for anyone who's got analysis paralysis, if I direct debited your bank account every day, $205 for you to sit around and not make a decision, do you think that you would make a decision faster? I think so, right? Because you'd be like, what? This is terrible. But most people just don't see it because they think it's an, it's an invisible cost, but it's real. Now, the actual back end of that is that it's not just $205 a day, right? It is actually a lot more than that because as you get compound growth playing into it, that can actually one year of indecision can actually play out to be hundreds of thousands of dollars over the long term if you make the right investment decision. So risk in and of itself comes from knowledge. Where it's only risky if you don't have the knowledge to your hands. Now the problem with property is that most people don't have access to the information. They just don't have it, right? It doesn't exist, right? So in loads of other asset classes, you can go and do really good, get good quality information. But in real estate, it, it, it doesn't exist. There's loads of people out there just like wafting around hype and hyperbole and big ideas and stuff like that. And it's mostly based on gut feel. Like It's mostly like, oh yeah, I think this area is going to grow. And here's my vague kind of assumptions on why I think that's going to happen based on no actual statistical evidence or scientific fact, all of this kind of stuff. And so it's kind of hard to kind of work out how to actually break through that, that risk, that knowledge risk gap, right? Because the more informed you are, the better decisions you can make. And if you can reduce the likelihood. You can never avoid risk 100%. But if you can reduce the risk quantum, then it makes it a hell of a lot easier to make better decisions, right? And so that's fundamentally one of the things that we do, right? So we actually invest a lot of money <laughs> every year in continuously solving this problem. Like we got we got six data scientists on the team and and we're investing you know, a couple of million dollars this year just on solving that piece. Like, how do we reduce the risk? And a lot of people ask, like, why are we doing this? And it's because why are we investing so much money in that area? Why do we have a team of scientists and, and developers and stuff continuously trying to solve this problem? And I'll, I will absolutely tell you it's because when we started this business, right, I was so scared that we would make a mistake. I was like, look, I'm pretty sure, like, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get this right. But what if? What if, what if I'm wrong? So we've invested a lot of money in trying to close that gap to reduce the risk, which is reducing the risk for our clients and getting greater results. So analysis paralysis is normal, but at some point, you've actually got to weigh up 
how do I transition from my current state to my future state? And it's all about getting outside your comfort zone. Everything that you want in life, everything that you ever want to achieve in life is on the outside of your comfort zone. That is, you know, going up to that boy or girl that you see you've got a crush on and asking them out on a date. That's getting out of your comfort zone and it could lead to lifelong love. It is applying for the job that you're that you really, really want and worrying that you might not going to get it, you're going to get out and doing the job interview and all of that kind of stuff. That's getting outside your comfort zone. Um, going to the gym and lifting heavier weights and all of that kind of stuff. And that doesn't feel nice. You don't do that because it feels nice. You do that because you're getting out of your comfort zone and you're trying to move to a state where you are fitter, healthier, happier, bigger muscles, a better standard of living and all of that kind of stuff. Every single thing that you want in life is on the other side of that gap. You've got to get out of your comfort zone and move to a new state. Now, the easiest and best way to do that is to build a team around you. That's the easiest way to do it. Because if you try and pass that... Um, if you try and cross that bridge... By yourself, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard, but you can actually shortcut that by getting the right team around you a team of trusted advisors, a team that have your best interests at heart. And that's what that's specifically uh, what we're trying to do here. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, last, last question and last limiting thought that some clients sometimes come in to Dashdot with mm. is um, they uh, have their own thoughts and ideas on what makes a successful investment. And sometimes that's a bit different to what we recommend and what we would say to them, the criteria for making a successful investment. And so sometimes there's that backwards and forwards um, of learning and listening and understanding uh, and maybe a little bit of re-education on what makes a successful investment. Um, and so, can you talk me through some dynamics in that space and yeah. um, maybe some some examples you've seen of, to- of that dynamic? Totally, right? And this kind of actually comes off the back of the last question, right? Because most people want to want to uh, achieve a certain level of uh, financial, we'll call it financial freedom, but freedom, choice, and abundance. And because they want to reduce the quantum of risk, and because they're trying to cross that analysis paralysis bridge, they start to form their own opinions and theses around what good looks like, right? Now, the problem with that is that statistically speaking, everyone is wrong, right? 99% of people are wrong. Um, that's not me and my opinion. That's facts and stats from the Australian Tax Office. So, if people actually knew how to build a property portfolio and that was going to deliver them to their desired goal in their future state, more than 90% of people would get past two properties. And in fact, more than 99% of people would actually achieve... Uh, sorry, more than 1% of people would achieve their goals, right? So that's like the facts speak for themselves. Most people don't know how to do it. And people need to step out of their ego and realize that that is just a fact, right? And try and get some help. Now, what we have, what we are, I would, I'm happy to say, best in the country at, possibly, well, I won't say best in the world, but best in the country at is helping to build people to build scalable property, property, property portfolios. And the way that we do that is by looking at, at it methodically, systematically, looking at specifically what an individual portfolio needs in order to move to the next step and not get stuck. That's how we're able to help clients buy two, three, four, even five properties in 12 months where most people might only ever buy one investment property in their whole life because they get stuck. Right, So that's the difference. Now, when people come in with their own investment thesis, it usually is a little bit wrong. And when they're coming to work with us, the challenge is what we do is a little bit contrarian. But um, I believe that in order to be a successful investor, you have to be a little bit contrarian because if you are just doing what everyone else is doing, you are only going to get what everyone else has got. And 
what you're actually trying to do is be different. You're actually trying to create something new for you and you're trying to be one of the few that actually achieve those goals. So uh, in order to do that, you need to be prepared to be contrarian. Um, and there's a great quote by Mark Twain that says, uh, if you find yourself standing on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect, right? And I love that, right? Because you've got... And this goes back to the first bit. Like You're actually going to have to park some of your old ideas and go, okay, um, if I want to get results that, that, that matter to me, that are unlike what other people have been able to get, how do I get to that state? So what we have been working on for the last three years is trying to answer the question of like, how do you get the maximum return in the fastest time with the minimum risk, right? That's the goal. That should be the goal of any investor. Like, how do you get maximum return, minimum time, minimum risk? And what that's essentially the whole kind of thesis around how we do everything we do. That's why we find properties that are cash flow positive. That's why we spend, you know, well north of a million bucks just on 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 data and AI to try and find the right right location, right time. That's why we have a team of um, property analysts specifically analyzing every single property that we find in those areas to try and find sort the wheat from the chaff because it makes a big difference. Now, so that's kind of like parking the old ideas of what you might have come in with. And just to kind of highlight a point on that, a lot of people think that they need to, I don't know, add value. Now, when we talk about the holy trinity, we talk about cash flow positive, high growth area, and value add potential. But the value add piece, that's like that's like the bonus. That's the icing on the cake. That's not the reason. That is not why you buy the property. Because a lot of people buy properties and they think the only way that they are going to be sure to get growth and whatever is to manufacture value by doing a small development or something like that. It's a super common piece of thinking. Now, with that, if that is your primary strategy, buy a property, develop it, add value, then it literally doesn't matter where you buy. Like, All you need to do is make sure that that development um, site feasibility stacks up. So you could pretty much buy anywhere. So just whatever, just pick a, pick a place and just, just go for it. And if you do that, you're working on an assumption that you cannot possibly work out what areas are going to go up and what areas are going to go down. And the only way to actually know that you're going to do the right thing is to is to is to manufacture the equity. And I just think that's a really outdated way of thinking. And there like we have been able to we continue to be able to, you know, identify right place, right time. So I think you can kind of park that and you need to kind of step into a new state of being where you actually need to believe that you actually can identify what a good market is versus a bad market. But the other place I see people going wrong with this is that they focus on the they focus on the small stuff, right? So, for example, they might buy a property and then I don't know. Let's say the doors need to be replaced or something, and they will focus on the fact that maybe the doors or whatever maintenance needs to be done on the house might cost two thousand dollars, right? Let's say they bought a five. Let's say they bought a five hundred thousand dollar property, and they're focusing on the fact that there might be a two thousand dollar nominal cost or whatever the case may be on that property, or even. Let's call it a ten. Maybe there's ten thousand dollars of things that go wrong. Like let's just blow it up a little bit. Let's make it into something that might actually be an issue. People think too short term, and they're worried about what that means in their asset over the short term. Oh my god, this property is costing me money. Ah, whereas in reality, that property, let's say, it grows by ten percent. That's going to make you fifty grand in capital. Uh, on top of that, over the next ten years, it's probably going to make you closer to five hundred thousand dollars in in capital. Right, so. People can really sweat the small stuff and that can get in the way. I know personally, and the way that, that we manage our properties is that 
we basically like whatever's going to make the life of the tenants better, we just do it. Okay, cool. They need they need a thing fixed. Great, let's fix it. Great. Because what I know to be true is that if we can have good tenants in the properties, that's a great asset because we don't have letting costs and stuff like that. Because where people, where landlords specifically can go wrong is they can sweat the small stuff and be like, I don't want to have to spend another $50 on, I don't know, widgets or whatever for the house. And because they continuously say no to things, the tenant doesn't feel valued. They don't feel like they're in a place where they can call home and nothing ever changes and they want to leave. And then you have like a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars in reletting costs with marketing costs and vacancy and all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, again, it's you've you've got this kind of like negative effect there. So I think sweating the small stuff really gets in the way. Really, really gets in the way. You know, if you can buy the right property in the right place at the right time, that is the only thing that you need to do. That is where all the money gets made. And even like I remember buying a property and um, three months after we bought it. Despite the fact that the building and pest inspection had told us the roof was in good nick, three months after we bought it, the roof was leaking and um, it was the middle of winter and it was raining and it was water going straight into the house. And so we had to replace the roof and we didn't really have any money at the time. And it was a $20,000 thing to replace the roof. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like, you know, we bought this property for like $10,000 under market value or whatever it was, but then we've just had to spend 20 grand on the roof. Oh my God, we're, we're in the red on this property. Two years later, that property had gone up by $150,000. Like, and I've completely forgotten about that expense aside from the fact I've just mentioned it now. But it's like, I don't even really consider that. I don't even really think about that in the quantum of profitability for the, for the, for the asset because there's so much other value that gets unlocked. So I think, and that kind of lends back in that analysis paralysis thing because mm. people come in with all this preconceived notion of like, you've got to scrimp and save every dollar to maximize the profitability. In fact, we had somebody on the podcast um, recently who was talking about, you know, oh, when I renovate, I only put the cheapest possible things into the properties and, you know, never spend a dollar more than you have to and all that kind of stuff. And personally, I believe that's the wrong thesis. I think that I think that people need to have an abundant mindset and they need to be uh, prepared to spend money where it makes sense and play a longer and bigger game. Because if you do that and if you get your head out of the weeds and stop focusing on the little grains of sand, then you're actually going to be able to think bigger and you're going to build a bigger property portfolio. And it can be the difference between you know, you being able to buy five or 10 properties. You know, If you buy two properties every year for five years, you're going to end up with 10 properties in five years. Most people will never achieve that in their lives. right? And the way to do that is to stop focusing on the small stuff and start focusing on the big picture and play a bigger game. So it's a big, big mindset shift. Mm. Yeah, super interesting to see how um, those two elements going together, so the analysis paralysis and, and coming in with preconceived thoughts on what makes a, a good investment property um, and how they, they go together. And I think um, two things that stood out for me in particular was having maybe coming in with um, the feeling that you need to have the answers as a client. And that's not actually the point. You know, If you're a, a nurse or a, a teacher or a marketing manager, you're, you don't specialize in property. You don't actually yeah. need to know all that answer. And that's okay that you don't have that answer. I think I think because we all live in some form of property, we feel like we should understand it and know how it works. And that's just not, it's not realistic. It's too big uh, a complex uh, ecosystem to ever understand. And so you don't actually need to have those answers. And, uh, you know, if you have been learning about property and listening to podcasts and reading books and done some investments um, in property yourself, you will absolutely have your own ideas on what makes potentially for a good or not so good investment. But if you have the right team with you, 
put all that on the table, come in with curiosity, put it on the table and go, I've I've seen this. Is this accurate? What do you think about this? And, and test the theories, you know, and, and yeah. this is what I really encourage our um, clients to do with our team is actually come in with, with curiosity and go, why are you recommending that? Because I think this and, and actually test it out. And, and that's a really important trust building exercise to do with whoever your advisor is, whether it's Dashdot or anyone else. Just, mm. you know, no judgment, just test the theory and um, see if it, it it makes sense and and if it starts to come together and start building that trust but also be open with some curiosity that maybe it's not right and and if you're not that's that's fine it's actually not you don't need to know the answers to it i think that's really important yeah absolutely it's like yeah exactly there's a couple of parts to that there's no there's nothing wrong with coming in with some ideas and going hey i've been thinking thinking about it like this does that work if not why Mm. not can we like talk about that that's great i think i think it's healthy um good but to your point, it's like if you already knew the answers and you could already do it yourself, then why would you be seeking help? Mm. So if you're seeking help, you are openly saying, I don't know how to get to where I want to go. And therefore, you need to have, you need to let go of your ego and open yourself up to other possibilities and open yourself up to other conversations and ways to get there. So I think that's, mm. I think that's really good. I think um, just just the last point on that um, before we wrap up is you're also talking about the way that we do things might be a little bit contrary to how how other yeah. other companies or how other investors think about it um, and that that's fine we're pretty confident in, in how we go about things uh, because of, of how much research and time and energy has gone into making sure that we're making the right decisions on behalf of our clients um, but that it is sometimes contrary um, and. You know, I, I would imagine that for for some of our clients, that if they're investing in property and they're talking to their friends at Sunday barbecue about, you know, we're going for a positively geared property, and someone that maybe has never even invested in property before is going, oh, it should be it should be negatively geared. I'm sure it should be negatively geared, and it starts to see doubt. But who are you listening to? Yeah. Do they have a prolific property portfolio? And if they do, have that conversation with. Fantastic, mine them for ideas and thoughts and test your theories. But if they don't have a prolific portfolio, maybe that's not the place you should be going to. Yeah, but for even, even if they even if they do have a prolific property portfolio, try and yeah. understand what the difference is between their situation and yours, because what yeah. works for them might not work for you. The other thing that I would say to that is, um, yeah, like the positively, you know, positive cash flow, negative gearing kind of conversation for sure. But actually, what can be really terrifying for people, right, is when we enter into locations, we typically identify growth areas before other people do. So when we get there, you are literally standing on the precipice. You're a pioneer looking over the edge of a big crevasse and you're about to jump off. And you're looking around going, hang on a second. If I look at like the last 10 years worth of growth, or if I listen to the media, or if I listen to my mates or whatever, they're telling me this area is bad. You're gonna have like that. That could be daunting, right? Like you're a part, you're literally walking that path. But what I know to be true is that every area that we have bought into over the last three years, roughly six months or you know a little bit, maybe sometimes like twelve months after, it becomes a hotspot later on. That's when all the other investors pile in. So if you want to get superior returns, like we get on average about two hundred and sixty percent greater returns than the average investor, right? Return investment. So if you want to get those returns, you actually have to try and do something a little bit different. But it doesn't make it any less daunting where you're like, oh my God, I've heard that this area is like no good. Yep. And oh my God, for the last 10 years, it's performed really poorly. And what are we doing buying here? It's not about where it's been, it's about where it's going. And yeah, so being contrarian requires you to also be brave. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
and this is why we talk about mindset so much. I feel like every second question I give give you guys is mindset and blockages and how to work through it. That's why because it's yeah. it's nerve wracking and it's it's the rest of your life. You know, what if you put five hundred thousand dollars in the wrong direction? You know, we're not talking about you know chum change mm. here. It's you know it's a significant investment, so it makes sense why it's it's nerve wracking and. and Everyone has their own mental barriers normally that they um, need to work through. They might have had experiences in the past that, that weren't so positive. And so, this is why we talk about mindset so much because that's actually a limiting factor in a lot of cases. 100%. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the game is one in the mind, that's for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, do we have any other Good questions? Ones. Do we have any other questions? No. Awesome. No, I'd that, like this. that was it for today. It's been fun. I've enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I think we covered it like that. That was a really great uh, set of questions because we covered like mm. a variety of different uh, aspects there. So, um, if you're listening to this, if you're listening to the show, I encourage you to send any questions. Um, we can ask them on the show just like this. I think it's a great uh, format where people can actually get involved and get their questions answered as well. So just send those questions to til at dash dot dot com dot au. That's til at dashdot.com.au. Uh, we'll pick up those questions and we'll get them answered on the show, just like all these guys did. Vanessa, thanks. It's been a really fun episode. Pleasure, Goose. Thanks very much. Awesome. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.